Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and of course, we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about holy images, which is kind of a callback to uh, a few podcast episodes ago when we talked about signs and symbols and words and actions. These are things that you can see that point to Christ, and, and we're just going to stretch that out a little, go a little broader this week. So without further ado, episode eight of the Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. So these signs and symbols that the liturgy uses can be words, can be music, can be time, can be buildings, can be people, can be sacred furnishings, or can be images. They're all species of this genus, which is uh, sign or symbol. And they're the medium by which we come to encounter this unseen reality, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. Yeah, any, anything that orients towards Jesus Christ, even words you were saying. Right, right. Everything that you encounter through your five senses in the liturgy is meant to lead you to an encounter with Christ, to, to help you to cooperate in his saving work of the Paschal Mystery. So where does holy images fit in this flowchart? Well, they're primarily attuned to the eye, and you know, the Catechism says that every image is fundamentally a participation in Christ. Christ is the principal image or the principal sacrament of the Father. And the logic of the theology is that God was, you know, the word ineffable is used, unknowable, unseeable beyond space and time, not knowable in our realm to our senses. And then for whatever his reasons of fatherly love were, he sent the son to take on human, sacramentalized, sensible reality. And then Jesus says, uh, I think it's to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. So he's this outward, visible image of the uh, invisible God. So Jesus himself, the incarnate Christ, is a uh, is an icon, is an image of God the Father. Right, an icon, you know, we think of them as the little wooden boards with the, the sacred images on them. I can't imagine them. Eastern churches, yes. Um, but, you know, the icon, by definition, is something of this earth made of matter through which these heavenly or godly things break through into our own realm. And that's how you encounter them. And when you encounter them, then you become hopefully formed by them into those heavenly realities. So this goes beyond just like a painting or stained glass window. Uh, would the burning bush for Moses, would that be a holy image? Well, I think that first of all, before we, we make um, artistic representations of holy things, uh, all of create, you know, creation, oh, yeah, creation uh, can, can be yeah, uh, images. It's meant you know, to be an image of, uh, of God. And so even you know, a saint... Before a saint is depicted, the saint himself or herself is an image of Jesus Christ, a living flesh and blood, sacramental expression of Jesus Christ. So we call a saint a saint because he is, in a sense, or she, uh, less like uh, herself and more like Jesus. You know, uh, thinking like Jesus thinks, loving like Jesus loves, serving like Jesus serves for God's glory and the salvation of the world. And if we can do that really well, then we too will be called Saints, because we become icons or sacramental ex- expressions of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm running like 60-40 right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for like 90-10, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, aim higher than that. 
And then, well, if you do get to that, uh, I don't know if 90, 10, but if you get all the way, then someday someone will make uh, artistic representations of you. And that representation, that icon becomes this uh, uh, way to encounter through you Christ himself, because they're all leading us deeper into the mystery who is God. Right. So remember, the, the whole concept of active participation is becoming by doing. I want to be heavenly. I'm going to do heavenly things. You can develop habits of selfishness, not taking care of the poor, not helping the sick, not being nice to your family. Those will form habits away from your own perfection, your own glorified version of yourself. And so a sacred image in at one way is to give us an example. Oh, there's a person who I'm looking at sacramentally through art who shows me what a transformed person looks like. I can someday be like that. So it kind of leads us on as an archetype. And people talk about Michael Jordan, all this whole generation of kids wanted to play basketball because Michael Jordan was so good at it. And you look at that and say, wow, I wish I could do that. And so a saint in a certain sense does that. I want to be like that because I see the beauty of that life. I was one of those kids who wanted to be like Michael How'd Jordan. How'd that work out I, for you, Chris? Well, now I'm a, now I'm a liturgist. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen your liturgical dunk. <laughs> liturgical but, dunk? Yeah. You know, it, it really... Is that, is that uh, self-intinction? Or what is that? <laughs> a baptism. Yeah. What, but it's a great analogy because, you know, I could have worked 24, 24 hours a day, and the fact is I would never be Michael Jordan. Impossible. But what the church's sacraments uh, do, and especially through these sacraments that bestow sacramental character, I mean, they, they, they can form us to be almost not simply like Jesus, but in some way, Jesus. I can be like Jesus Christ in a way that I cannot be like any other human being who ever has lived. You could probably get to like Tony Kukoc status maybe though. <laughs> maybe not Michael Jordan, but Kukoc I think you could do. <laughs> I, I think even that's uh, uh, above my uh, ability. So, so primarily we're talking about anything you can see. And so, uh, so we, have, we have people who are, you know, images of saints. We've talked about that. But also anything that's, you know, representative of a holy image as well. So we're taking, you know, a step, a step back. So if we see an image of, you know, um, uh, mass or chalice and, you know, any of that, those are holy images as well? In a way, yeah, and they're different kinds of images. You know, you can have a, a plaque in the, in the lobby of your parish uh, hall of the pastor made of bronze. And that's an image of him, right? It's a historical image of somebody who was really there. And you could have a devotional image, which is, you know, a statue in a corner of the Sacred Heart, and you have your one-on-one -on -one time of prayer. And then there's a liturgical image, which actually shows you the, the realities of the liturgy of heaven. And that would more um, properly be in the sanctuary. It would show you know, Christ surrounded uh, by the angels and saints in his glory and joining the new heaven and the new earth and the angels and saints and singing praise of God. And so that's a very particular kind of image. Are there yeah. any, is there anything else beyond liturgical and devotional and like categorically? Yeah, well, there's sacred images that might be sacred history. So you could show Christ in the carpenter shop not really a liturgical image. It's not showing the liturgy of heaven, but it's more of a reminder of the holy uh, history, a scriptural history. No, say more about that, Dennis, because we're we're treating uh, images like uh, in the, in their kind of sacramental quality that you see something externally, but that manifests something unseen internally. What is that unseen reality that should be depicted? Well, at the level of the liturgical image, we're talking about encountering the things of heaven. Remember, count, encounter is how you become transformed by something. So something has to be perceived to be encountered. 
So if I've never met you, I'm not going to encounter the great Jesse, right? Right here. And the great. And yeah. all of your puns and all of your uh, charm and delight, wit, good looks. If you want to see what heaven looks like, you have to encounter it somehow. And so in the great tradition of the church, you'll often see on the, on the wall behind a mural, excuse me, on the wall behind an altar, a great mural of the angels and saints, Christ seated in glory. You might see an image of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we talked a few weeks ago about who celebrates the liturgy. You, you celebrate the liturgy with the angels and the saints and the Trinity and the renewed creation, and you participate in the glorification of that in the future by experiencing it now. So by encountering those dimensions of the communities of the liturgy, you're actually first knowing that you're, this is not your own uh, business just here with the people in that church, that there's a cosmic dimension of all creation worshiping God and the heavenly dimension of the angels and saints. And so you know, the church says the fine arts, uh, that the visual arts are among the highest achievements of men's potential uh, as a fine artist, precisely because they allow you to see things that are otherwise unencounterable. In fact, Paul VI, Pope Paul VI, uh, gave a speech to a group of artists in the 60s, and he said, your ministry as artists is very much like our own, meaning that of priests, that artists were like priests. Because priests can't be artists, got it. Well, they can, but they have a different kind of medium. <laughs> the, uh, that they would take the stuff of the earth, you know, pigments, which is basically dug out of the ground, and they represent Christ in an icon. And so Christ somehow becomes encounterable because an artist can do that and Christ in his glory just like a priest uh, makes Christ encounterable in the Eucharist of course the Eucharist is the highest possible level and an artistic image is at a lower level of participation but it's fundamentally the same kind of act I've heard you say before and I hope I'm uh, recounting this correctly that you know that architecture and art is kind of a visible form of theology just yes. like there's a written... I was hoping we would get this whole thing without talking about architecture, because I know Dennis has been waiting. <laughs> oh, well, just as there's kind of a written form of unseen uh, uh, mysteries of faith, sacred scripture, so there's a, uh, an artistic uh, representation of that, too. The, the stuff, the, the, the res sacramenti, the reality of everything uh, iconographic or artistic is uh, Jesus Christ uh, uh, reigning eternally in heaven. Right, you know, the Orthodox churches are called Orthodox churches because they had these big battles over the, whether they should use images or not in the 8th and 9th centuries. It became such a battle, in fact, that they were uh, cutting off the hands of iconographers and different emperors would make icons legal or illegal. And so for a century or two, they had to figure out, is it licit to make images of Christ? Because there are certain prohibitions against images in the Yeah, Old because how could, you, how could you ever even depict such a great god? And the way that they came up with this, and St. John Damascene solved this problem a long time ago, and he's still the guy in the footnotes of the Catechism for Sacred Images to today, even though it was over a thousand years ago, said that Christ chose to reveal himself in a visible way. The God who was invisible became visible. The, word, that, the word they use is circumscribed, that he drew a line around himself. Hmm. And therefore we could see him, and we can then make images of him because he chose to make an image of himself. So we're acting with Christ's own authority. And that really uh, relies on the incarnation, right? If material things are good, if the world is good, creation is good, you can use it to reveal God. And so that's the foundational theology for That makes a lot of sense images. because God could have, you know, chosen not to reveal in any image sense. But because Christ was man and was something to be seen, you know, we then can depict him and all of his glory and things that orient towards him. Uh, the model of the incarnate Christ, too, seems to be uh, especially applicable to maybe the character of liturgical images. Right? 
I know you weren't born then, Dennis, but in, in the, I guess it's the fifth century, there were these hair. Were, were you born then? No, a little oh, bit okay. after that. You look like it though. <laughs> I feel like it too some days. In the, in the fifth century, there were these, uh, the, there were these errors about the, uh, about the person and the nature of Jesus that, you know, are still around today. There was, uh, the, the Nestorians who thought Jesus was, um, a human person. We believe Jesus is a divine person with two complete natures. But they were emphasizing the, the human element of Jesus to the detriment of his divine. Okay. About uh, 20 years later at the, uh, let's see, that was Ephesus, Chalcedon, I guess it is, uh, in uh, 451, the, the error was the opposite. They were emphasizing his divinity to the, to the detriment of his humanity. Okay, so Jesus kind of ceased to become human. He kind of morphed into some monophusis, this other nature. But these uh, overemphases uh, become or can become errors about, it seems, uh, liturgical art. So the liturgical art similarly needs to be fully human, just like Jesus was, but in a divine sort of cast. So that what we know we're, we're encountering is something that is uh, uh, understandable by us, but it's not like a photographic depiction. It exists in another world. Am I on, am I on the right that, track that there? That makes a lot of sense because what I was going to ask Dennis before you kind of went into that was, well, how, why even do this if we know that this image is, is not a complete image of, of what is there? So, I mean, we don't know exactly what heaven is going to be like. We, we cannot perceive that. Um, so these images are, are, you know, and obviously you explained this, but my next question is, how do we know these images that are given to us and that do exist, how do we know that they're oriented? Well, they have different uh, scriptural foundations, typically. I mean, you hear about the uh, description of St. John in the book of Revelation. He says there's a tear in the heavens, and he sees into heaven Christ seated on the throne and surrounded by these elders in white robes and people from all the tribes and all the nations, and they're singing Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. So when we sing Holy, Holy, Holy in Mass, we're not just doing that because someone thought it was a good idea. It's been revealed to us that this is the song of heaven. And it's also been revealed to us through St. John that this, in some degree, is what heaven looks like. And so that becomes a, a basic uh, foundation. So we have a good, on, on a good accord that some, you know, what's been revealed to us is pretty close. Right. And it's always the challenge of every artist in every century to figure out how to do it more well or, or less well. I mean, there's, it's always a challenge. How do you find out what heaven is like? So in, you know, in the Eastern tradition, serious iconographers will fast and pray and they'll ask the Holy Spirit to guide their hand as they make their icons so that the Holy Spirit and the artist in unity become one being in a sense. And so the best iconographers are not the ones who are the trendiest or who you know sell icons and you know, Greenwich Village lofts or whatever. They're the ones who best figured out how to let the Holy Spirit use them to most fully represent the heavenly realities so that the person who encounters that icon can see what that looks like and best understand it. In the Eastern tradition, they say that uh, looking at an icon is like fasting because you don't look at some exciting, you know, smash em up movie, you know, like Terminator. You're looking at people doing kind of boring looking stuff, you know, standing in this peaceful condition in heaven, looking at the face of God. All their passions are glorified and therefore quieted. You, you never see images in icons, you know, having a bar brawl or being drunk or lustful, you know, the, all those human passions are brought to their elevated pitch. So when you first look at an icon, you might say, well, that looks kind of boring. But then you realize that's what a person whose passions are transfigured and all their energy is directed toward God. 
you have to really contemplate them and see what does that mean for me and how do I learn from this image. Or uh, when you talk about uh, orthodox icons, I mean, do we have an uh, iconographic tradition in the West that's uh, similar to that? You stole my question, Chris. Oh. Sorry, well, we do, but it's not as clearly uh, stated. I mean, the Orthodox Church is called the Orthodox Church because after their battles about icons, they came to agreement that icons or images could be allowed, and those who held that position were considered Orthodox. And so from then on, they were called the Orthodox Church because of their notion of how to use images. And so their big feast uh, is the Triumph of Orthodoxy. Uh, that's this, they have wrote these great hymns about the nature of the images. And so because they had to fight over this and because they had to precisely guard this tradition, the Eastern churches have a very well delineated, worked out theology of images. In the West, we don't really have that uh, as much. And uh, this is where I think John Paul's notion of the two lungs breathing in the church, the Eastern church and the Western church, can really come and, and help us figure out what our own tradition is. But once you know you're looking at an image of heaven in the liturgical sense, and then you go back and you see a great Gothic cathedral with uh, images on the rear wall behind the choir of the angels and saints in adoration, then you can start to say, oh yeah, I get it. What I'm looking at is not just a collection of devotional images, but the whole array or the the cloud of witnesses that surrounds the glory of the heavenly throne, and we're joining that cloud of witnesses ourselves. Yeah, but as you say, this this array or this cloud—they're not just uh, randomly uh, scurrying about in heaven. They're they're very much ordered. Uh, they've been made uh, beautiful and cosmetic again with uh, uh, with Jesus. And so there's a this this hierarchical church that we believe in, as we've mentioned in a previous podcast. I mean, it's an order of, of worshiping beings, and so even. And I think this is an insight uh, that I've, I think I've come to understand uh, uh, from you, Dennis, is that these, these images are not just random, haphazard placements of pretty pictures. They're all focused on what's central, which is uh, the lamb uh, seated on the throne. And for this reason, they can help. You know, sometimes you hear the, uh, uh, the criticism, perhaps, that all of these images are, are a distraction from the mass. But if they're done properly, they shouldn't take us away from the reality. To see an image properly used is meant to draw us further into the reality. So imagine if um, someone said to you, well, singing the, the Sanctus is a distraction from the Mass because you're singing holy, 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 and therefore you're not looking at what the priest on the altar is doing. That's not, that's not a distraction. That's the nature of the liturgy itself to sing God's praises. It's also in the nature of the liturgy itself to see images of those beings singing God's praises. What's not precisely in the nature of the liturgy is to have a bunch of devotional images where you go and talk to one-on-one -on -one with your saints. So, you know, the great image of St. Lucy, these funny images where she's got her eyes on a plate, you know, because she's the patron saint of people with eye diseases. And, you know, if you have pink eye or your macular degeneration, you might want to go see St. Lucy and say, St. Lucy. You should contact someone. Exactly. Solve my uh, astigmatism <laughs> problem and ask her to intercede for you. That's great, right? That's part of the tradition, but that's not, properly speaking, liturgical action. So you do devotional things in devotional times and devotional places. If you look at a lot of 19th century churches, they would sprinkle devotional images kind of all around, including the sanctuary. And so there was this notion in the liturgical reform movement of the 20th century to let devotional things be devotional and liturgical things be uh, liturgical. And sometimes they didn't know the difference. They'd just say, oh, images are bad because they're a distraction from the liturgy. Paint the rear wall of the church beige, and then the liturgy will be all at the altar. But that's to lose the heavenly and cosmic dimensions of liturgy and really impoverish the sign and symbol system that is supposed to encourage us to know the wider aspect of what we're doing. 
Uh, going into the devotionals, I mean, I think, you know, we all, we all have our, our favorite saints, our favorite stories, our favorite even images that, that help us, uh, you know, kind of understand uh, our relationship with Christ. Where, where is the line between, you know, um, you know using the image too much um, and, and I guess, you know, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters say, like, you know, you're worshiping, you know, that statue of St. Francis. Well, um, as, a, as a Catholic who has a devotion to St. Francis, you know, where's that line? Um, like, how should we be thinking about these images when we're going, you know, about our devotions? Well, this is the precise question that people have been asking for hundreds of years. You know, if you venerate an object, if you venerate a statue, you're not venerating the paint and the wood that it's made of. You're venerating the idea that is breaking through that object or the, or the venerating the person, the saint, who is always an attribute of Christ. So a saint is a member of the mystical body. Anytime you venerate St. Francis or Mother Teresa or whoever it happens to be, it's because they are a part of the mystical body. And so that reverence is being transferred to Christ and therefore to the Father. So there's a difference between worship and veneration. It's very important. We only worship God. We venerate those aspects of God that lead us back to the fullness of Christ. So uh, an image can become an idol if you don't understand that. If you say, oh, this, this is a magical statue. If I you know, touch it, I'll be healed. As opposed to, this is the thing that allows me to generate and well up and focus and concentrate my desire and love of God to ask for this healing and sort of stimulate that emotional and intellectual understanding and then to go to the Father through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and in some ways, this is, uh, we've mentioned this before, what's beautiful, one of the many beautiful things about the Catholic liturgy is how not simply truly divine it is, but how human it is, how how it takes these things that we do as as, uh, human beings and incorporates them, perfects them, directs them rightly, and elevates them. You know, and so all human beings, whether you're Catholic theologians or uh, atheists, we all use images to, you know, bring us into contact with people, for example, who are... uh, you know, not with us anymore, or you know, the, the bronze baby shoes, or the picture of your deceased grandma, or the lock of hair that you've cut, or the picture, you know, whatever it might be. We use things all the time, images all the time, to connect us to people who are not there. Well, the, the use of uh, sacred images, liturgical images and, and icons, do that. But like uh, like other sacramental things, they don't just remind us of Saint uh, Francis. They they at least have that potential to, in some way. Uh, have have a have a true encounter with him and through him to Jesus and, and uh, God the Father, right? So something of Saint Francis's reality actually becomes present in the room where you are if an icon is properly uh, designed or other sacred image. So so basically, you know, I'm seeing Christ in Saint Francis, and so when I'm when I'm venerating Saint Francis, I, I'm I'm venerating all parts of Christ and no parts of him as a human being. Well, it's to the degree that he participates in Christ. So, I mean, nobody can exist without that Christ yeah, as yeah. the he doesn't, principle. Yeah, he doesn't cease to be himself, but he, beca- he becomes that uh, perfect uh, consummation of what he was meant to be. You know, so when you become uh, St. Jesse, uh, you, won't, uh, you won't cease to be yourself, but you will be uh, yourself remade in the image of Jesus Christ. And so to venerate you, God willing, uh, is to venerate uh, Jesus Christ. Now, when they say saints, is it from their birth town or from where they live less? Like, would I be St. Jesse of Aurora or St. Jesse of Chicago? Yeah, well, we'll cross that bridge okay, when yeah. we get St. to St. Jesse of Mundelein, I think. Oh, <laughs> okay. But, you know, the council documents say very clearly, 
that sacred images have their purpose um, when, they're direct, when they direct people's minds more precisely and devoutly toward God. That's what they do. Whether it's a devotional image that makes you ask for the intercession of a saint and therefore direct your, image, your, your imagination toward God, or whether you actually encounter the Trinity and the angels and saints in a great liturgical mural, the idea always is how do we take our hopes, our aspirations, our desires, our dreams, our intellect, our will, and direct them toward God in the liturgy. If they do that, then that's where they belong. If they do something else, then they probably don't belong in the church. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I think you know what time it is. Time for another email. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, we have a question uh, from Edith this week. Edith says, why do some celebrants change the wording and or add things to their responses? Can they do that? Obviously they can, but should they? God bless. The uh, short answer is uh, no. Okay, thanks. That was good. And the long answer is sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, The priest celebrant can say certain things in his own words uh, over the course of the Mass, but only in those places in the order of Mass where it explicitly says that he can do so. So, for example, after the sign of the cross and the greeting, at the beginning of Mass, uh, it says the celebrant can introduce uh, the, the liturgy in, uh, in a few brief words. So it is possible that uh, the priest can say certain things in his own words at particular points. But the other parts of the Mass are not to be changed. Uh, and the reasons, and you know, it's more than just, well, this is what the rule says and you can't do it. I mean, what the rules are meant to do is to uh, safeguard a theology and an ecclesiology, and I would say in this point, uh, uh, the unity of the church. Um, the Constitution on the Liturgy was the first document of the Second Vatican Council. It's called Sacrosanctum Concilium, and what that means is this sacred council, and it goes on to say this sacred council has four aims in view, and one of those aims uh, is to do to foster what can promote union among all who believe in Christ. And so the principle of unity is something that is uh, part and parcel of the Roman tradition. I mean, you, you might know that we have one church in the West, the, the, the Latin church, where there are 20 or 21 Eastern Rite churches, all right? This, uh, there's, there's a greater a value on uh, diversity, I think, in the East and unity in the West. And this is just the character of... Uh, uh, of, of, the, of the Roman liturgy. Now, later on in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, it'll give us a number of norms and principles for the reform and restoration of the liturgy. The very first one, the very first one is, no one, not even if he be a priest, can add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. Right? So before all these other things, that's the very first one. It's not to be changed. And again, it's not simply because that's what the rule says, but because the uh, celebration of the liturgy is meant to be this unifying uh, uh, event, unifying in Christ, unifying the mystical body of Christ. And you experience that if you go to a Mass and the priest suddenly changes something. Instead of saying, the Lord be with you, he said, if he said, the Lord be with us, instead of just answering and with, answering and with your spirit, suddenly you'd be drawn out and you'd be more interested in the departure from the norm than you would be entering to the response. And the unity comes when... Uh, the right is consistent every time you know what to expect. And so yeah, the if I go to that the, parish, I might not know what to say then. 
Right. And if the words change, then suddenly you're drawn out of the spiritual reality behind the words, and suddenly you're thinking about the words. And so that helps you pray, in fact. And these words are carefully chosen over centuries, carefully translated. Someone might you know, do a play by Shakespeare, and they wouldn't say, well, I want to change this word here or there, because you're not true to Shakespeare's intention. At even a higher level, you have the intention of the words of the Mass as the voice of the bride to the bridegroom, bridegroom addressed to the Father. And if you start messing with those, you might unintentionally divide the community or say something that's not uh, worthy of the Father. Right. The, the aim to be considered before all else in the reform and restoration of the liturgy is active participation. But if you don't, you're a little unsure what to say in response or when to kneel or when to sit or what to do next, you're kind of taken out of your, taken out of your game, if you can put it that way. You don't know how to work. You don't know how to engage. You don't know how to participate if you don't know what's coming next. And so to, to make uh, illicit changes is to thwart the participation of the people in the assembly. But again, as Dennis says, I mean, these, we've talked about this before with liturgical language. I mean, these are little nuggets of, uh, put it this way, of the, the word. The, the, the words we use are sacramental expressions of the eternal word of the Trinity. And so this, is, this language has been cultivated by a living tradition um, that uh, is meant to express uh, Jesus Christ and allow us an encounter with him. We had a speaker here at the Liturgical Institute a few months ago talking about the collects of the Roman Missal, and she was translating them out of Latin, and she, she spoke of them as the great inheritance of a literature. And I never really thought about prayers of the Missal as literature, because they're more than literature, but at the one hand, these are poetic uh, expressions that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and crafted by people throughout the centuries and perfected, and you just don't go around uh, messing with those, and at the same time, you hope that the prayerful expression behind them can be dominant by being consistent with saying them again and again. That's what rites or rituals do. It's a familiar thing that allows you to go beyond the ritual itself. Uh, Chesterton has this uh, notion of what he calls the democracy of the dead. And this is what We've he called We've gone like four podcasts without you mentioning Chesterton. So this, that was good. That was <laughs> good, Chris. You made it a while. Well, this is the last thing I know okay. about Chesterton. And this is what he calls tradition, is that tradition is the voices of our deceased ancestors still uh, uh, being present and giving their vote today. And so to use the, the traditional language of the church signifies not just the unity of those who are celebrating the world today, but the, uni the, the universality throughout the ages uh, of, the, of our ancestors who have gone before us. So uh, what's in a word? A great deal. And uh, they, they're meant to be uh, uh, said or sung very prayerfully and faithfully. So I guess your answer is, can a priest change things in the Mass? Maybe, but why would you? Mm. Well, no, he, he, can, he can add things when he's allowed. Can't change things that aren't his to change. All right. Any more than the people in the pews can respond differently to Father. Well, I think that's another question, mm. so we'll cover that next time. All right. All right. Uh, if you want to submit your own question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you again, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. 